Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the essential shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. I'm joined by my continual partner in all things strategery, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and also the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, welcome. Great to see you. Well, it's great to see you. It's a good A, to be healthy, and B, not to be on the road, both of which are kind of a change from where I've been over the last few months. And looking forward to our uh, our guest. Well, let me introduce our guest. Our guest is Yaroslav Trofimov, the Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent of the Wall Street Journal, and uh, more to the point, the uh, author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Uh, its publication date was actually, I think, the 9th of January, which is uh, the day before we're recording this. Um, uh, Yaroslav is... Uh, uh, a war correspondent with a lot of experience in Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iraq, um, holds an MA from New York University, and is the author of uh, two previous books, Faith at War, and one of my favorite books, The Siege of Mecca, about the 1979 siege of the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Yaroslav, welcome to Shield of the Republic. Great to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Let me kick it off, and then um, I'm sure Elliot has plenty to ask you about. But let's start at the beginning, if you might, for our listeners. What is your assessment of why we are facing this war, why Ukraine finds itself in this war? A lot of people in the United States have argued that this was really prompted by the United States. uh, Famously, John Mearsheimer, professor of international relations, University of Chicago, says it was NATO enlargement and very bad U.S. policies that drove this. Uh, you are someone who comes from the region, native speaker. What's your sense of um, what drove Putin to declare war? Well, I think we have to go back to uh, what Putin has said uh, as the cornerstone of his worldview. To him, the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 uh, was the most tragic event of the 20th century. And he has been seeking ever since to rebuild Moscow's authority over these lands that were collected in, by the Russian monarchs for generations and then lost almost overnight, overnight in 1991. And so Ukraine really, in this frame, had two options. You know, Either you become a satellite that is nominally independent, like Belarus has become, or you have to be taken over by force. And sooner or later... You know, that was going to happen. I mean, he already tried once. Sorry, he initially, he initially tried the sort of the Belarus model uh, with President Yanukovych. Uh, mm-hmm. That didn't work because the Ukrainian people rebelled when Yanukovych tried to steer away from the Ukrainians' uh, European aspirations and, and embark on the Belarus-like path towards Moscow in 2014. He tried with... Uh, fostering a proxy war in Donbass and then hoping for change inside Ukraine. Uh, that also didn't happen. And uh, I think by, by, the, by the time of the invasion, 
uh, he was seeing that Ukraine was slowly but inexorably changing and moving uh, as a society towards the European Union, towards you know Western democratic ideas. You know, we saw uh, just sort of basic uh, sort of facts of life. You know, Ukrainians could travel without a visa to the European Union, and young people would routinely go uh, to to the West instead of Moscow. You know, so so sort of the the vector of society had changed and it was changing with every year. And so I think in, in his calculations, uh, time was working against him. But I think he had miscalculated the rate of change. And Ukraine, by the time of the invasion, had already changed so much that there was very little nostalgia, very little support for this past uh, of sort of a common fate with Russia. And I think the other mistake he made is that the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine was in its vast majority no longer for Russia because of what happened in 2014. Because in 2014, you know, Russia was still seen by many Russian speakers in Ukraine as the land of uh, opportunity, land of prosperity, higher salaries. But then when Russia took over Donbass and half the population had to flee and the economy disappeared, it was a vivid example of what happens when the Russians come to your country. So, the, the, you know, the, uh, Yara, there's... Um so much of a story of miscalculation in this book, which on both sides, which you really capture very well on the side of the Russians, also on the side of the West, I think not understanding uh, what Ukrainian resistance would be like and how difficult the war would prove for the Russians. You know, one figure who keeps on cropping up in your book, uh, who is, he's a war criminal, uh, uh, Igor Gerkin, who I guess goes by the nom de guerre Strelkov, but he also seems to have understood pretty early on that this was going to be far more difficult than anybody in the Russian military and kind of national security establishment did. Could, could you just elaborate on that? Why, why was that the case? It wasn't the case. And if so, why was it the case? I mean, I, I believe Gherkin is now in prison, uh, which may tell us something, but you know, say a little bit more, because he is a very interesting figure, I think. He's a very interesting figure. And, uh, you know, because of his firsthand experience in Ukraine, you know, he was the man who launched the, uh, you know, I mean, he sparked the violence in Donbass in 2014 by taking over the city of Slavyansk and holding it uh, for uh, for a month. And then he was the defense minister of the Russian proxy state-led Donetsk, so-called Donetsk People's Republic. So he had first-hand experience of Ukraine, uh, a new Ukraine. I, th- I think the problem in Russia is that there is so much disdain uh, for the Ukrainians, of the little brothers, you know, the little peasants, uh, that they were not taken seriously. And there was a dearth of expertise uh, in things Ukrainian. People just felt that like they wouldn't have to study Ukrainian politics at all. Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian society, it's all a joke. It's it's a fake country that will collapse as a house of cards, which was the prevailing belief in Moscow uh, ahead of the war. People were saying the the Ukrainian army will switch sides and all we have to do is remove this corrupt Western elite imposed by the CIA uh, and everyone else will 
because with flowers and and unity in the normal state of things will resume. And and Putin himself was to a large extent a hostage of this thinking. You know, he spent the entire COVID period, you know, in his bunker reading books about uh, you know Ukrainian history and how Ukrainians don't really exist, uh, kind of the, the traditional Russian view. And um, you know, if, if you read the books by Russian historians, you know. They would tell you that the Ukrainian language was invented by the Austro-Hungarian general staff to undermine the empire in you know, 1914. And people believe that. I mean, the, the serious people believe that in Russia. And, uh, you know, when he penned this essay that was read to every member of the Russian armed forces in 2021 on the historical unity of the Ukrainians and Russians, I think he really believed that. And he really believed that He's just restoring the normal state of affairs instead of trying to eliminate a nation that does exist. Just a, a quick follow-up on that. Do you think the Russians have substantially revised that initial view? And if so, what are the consequences of it? Because, I mean, you know, clearly they anticipated a Ukrainian collapse because of that understanding of what Ukraine is. And they absolutely failed to achieve that. And it's turned into something infinitely bigger and bloodier than they ever could have expected. Do you think that deep down there's now a a different understanding of Ukraine and and what consequences do you think that might have? I think on some level, yes. So if you read the, and I've spent far too much time reading Russian military bloggers on Telegram in the last two years. There is an appreciation that, yes, oh, wow, these guys, you know, know how to fight and they want to fight and, you know, they're actually kind of real. So one corollary of this is I think there is a lot more desire for vengeance and indiscriminate punishment. And so I think the, it, it made the Russians uh, more brutal in their behavior. Because if in the beginning they thought, they generally thought, you know, many soldiers thought they were coming to liberate our brothers from the Nazis who just took over power in, the, you know, in a putsch sponsored by the Americans in 2014. And once they realized they're actually facing a, a people that is hostile to them, I, I think that was, that was the trigger for many of the atrocities that we have seen after that. You know, this is not a new view that Putin came to. I mean, uh, as you noted, there's a lot of discussion about during COVID, he, he kind of took a deep dive into this history and background. But he had uh, famously told uh, President Bush 43, you know, uh, some 15 years ago that, you know, George, you have to understand Ukraine's not really even a nation. I mean, this is a deep seated, long held view with deep roots, as you you know, suggest it's not. not just not just for Putin. I think I think I think it was a majority view in the general public in Russia. You know, even even intellectuals like Joseph Brodsky kind of you know, thought like that. You know, when he famously penned this verse on the Ukrainian independence, full of profanities and wishing that the Dnieper River would flow backwards. You know, and so all the ungrateful Ukrainians who dare to break up with Russia. Yeah, and you you see it, you still see it even now in you know the writings and discussions of so-called Russian liberals like uh, Grigory Yavlinsky, who you know uh, you know shares this sort of Russian imperial 
view, what, however, wherever they are on the political spectrum, it, it, it doesn't really change the I mean, I, mean, I mean, you have seen some of the people in the Russian opposition who in 2014 were very ambiguous and now have come out very clearly you know, in support of Ukraine, to be fair. That also happened. Right. Very small number, though. Um, I mean, even Navalny, you know, in 2014, he was ambiguous. He said, Crimea is not a sandwich. You cannot give it back. But the statements he made from prison after the invasion to 2022 yeah. uh, you know, were much more clear-cut in defending the principles of Ukrainian independence and integrity. Fair enough. You know, I, but th- this actually precipitates another question I had for you, which is, and I think the book is really terrific on this point. And I, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I think there've been some excerpts in some uh, newspapers that have captured this, but there's been a, a narrative that there was an opportunity for a negotiated settlement early in the war. You had these talks in uh, Istanbul Minister Medinsky, the uh, I guess former culture minister, or is he maybe still culture minister? Former I can't him. remember. But uh, was was there, you know, acting at Putin's behest? And there were Ukrainians, and there were you know Roman Abramovich, sort of somehow wandering around uh, as a gray spectral presence over all of this. But you do a pretty good job of uh, making it clear that uh, unless the Ukrainians were prepared to totally capitulate, there really wasn't the makings of a of a deal here. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the talks, you know, there were several phases to these talks. And the first meeting happened four days after the invasion, where the situation was touch and go. There were Russian troops almost surrounding Kiev and, you know, attacking it and trying to take it over. The Ukrainian forces were struggling to put up defenses in other areas. Kharkiv was uh, tottering on the brink of being overrun. And uh, when the Ukrainians came to the stocks in Belarus, which was by no means neutral territory, uh, the Russians essentially wanted capitulation. The list of Russian demands read out by Medinsky included uh, handing over all the heavy weapons of the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, obviously you know, changing the government, creating a puppet regime in Ukraine, uh, Russian language as a state language, and even changing the street names uh, to remove everyone who's in Russian history is deemed to be you know, a foe of Russia. And by the time they met again after two more rounds in Istanbul at the end of March, 29th of March, 2022, situation, uh, the situation on the battlefield had changed dramatically. So, uh, the Ukrainians no longer had a gun to their head. And, you know, things that they could have considered uh, in the beginning of the war were, you know, the very existence, uh, the very survival of the government was very much in doubt, were no longer palatable uh, to discuss. And the Russian demands were also less harsh because the Russians realized that they lost the Battle of Kiev by then. By then the Russians started to withdraw the troops from around Kiev. Uh, so they no longer demanded that Ukraine hand over all the heavy weapons, but they still demanded pretty significant cuts uh, in the Ukrainian military. And there was no agreement how big they are. You know, Putin famously displayed the documents of the draft agreement, uh, but there was still a major divergence between Russia and Ukrainian positions. And up to that point, the Ukrainians were willing to discuss things like 
mutual status and abandoning NATO, NATO membership in exchange for binding international guarantees that you know, the U.S. was not going to give anyway at the time. So it was a bit of a pipe dream. And the negotiations were not going to lead to a binding agreement at the time because a lot of these things would have required Ukraine to have a referendum, you know, NATO membership as part of the Constitution, and that was made very clear. So this is still preliminary discussions. So there were, there were talks, there was no agreement. And then uh, when the delegations returned uh, to Kiev, the Ukrainian troops had just entered Bucha and found you know, more than 400 bodies of local civilians who were tortured, killed, uh, you know, executed uh, by the Russian forces there. And it was really a shock to the entire Ukrainian society and also opened, opened the eyes of the world to what Russia was doing in, in the territories it had occupied and to what was happening elsewhere. Because you know, we've seen Bucha, and we know what happened in Bucha because the Russians were forced out of Bucha and didn't have the time to cover the tracks. But in other places like Mariupol, they just bulldozed you know, housing blocks full of, uh, full of corpses. Nobody knows exactly you know, how many people died there, you know, 20,000, 30,000, 70. You know, nobody, nobody was counting. So I think that really that really was the psychological break for, break for Ukrainians. On one hand, they finally realized that they don't have to capitulate because they could beat the Russians. On the other hand, they also saw the costs of capitulating because, you know, if they had surrendered, there'd be butchers all over Ukraine. And there were some others like Izum and other places where yeah. similar things happened. Exactly, exactly. You know, you describe uh, very vividly the the kind of social cohesion that was shown all over Ukraine. Um, although there, I mean, there's one exception, which is the south of the area around Kherson, where actually the Russians were able to achieve quite a bit. So my first question is really, what accounts for the difference between, say, Kharkiv, where with a largely Russian-speaking population, I think people, including the Russians, anticipated that they would be able to to take the city pretty easily. And then what seems to have been the case um, in the area of the South, where they you know, did not initially meet uh, as much resistance as they did around Kiev or around Kharkiv. And then the second question I'd like to ask you, which is related to, to this, is how, how do you assess the um, the cohesion of Ukraine today after two years of you know really intense brutal conflict and what looks to be something of a stalemate although we can argue about that yeah so I mean, in some ways Kharkiv and Kherson are similar and the outcome was different because of leadership what I've seen throughout Ukraine is whenever wherever local leadership, the mayors, you know, the governors, you know, the village heads decided to resist, show initiative, even, you know, put a couple of bulldozers across the street, you know, dump trucks, blow up a bridge, that would stop the Russians because they were not prepared for resistance. And it would stop the Russians often long enough for the Ukrainian military to regroup, to, to, to take positions to stop them permanently. Uh, in Kherson, what happened in Kherson is what the Russians had expected to happen everywhere in Ukraine. The local leadership 
you know, large part of it was infiltrated by the Russians, you know, especially the local intelligence service. So they uh, collaborated with the Russians of their positions and no one really resisted. It's really remarkable because as soon as the Russians arrived at the borders of the Kherson region to the next one, suddenly they were stopped, you know, in Dnipropetrovsk region, for example. And the other difference is that Kharkiv is a particular city because Kharkiv had a history of this, you know, conflict in 2014. Let's remember that when the Russian People's Republics were proclaimed in Donetsk and Lugansk, they also tried in Kharkiv. They lasted one night, but they took over, you know, the pro-Russian militias took over the government building there, and then they were kicked out. And Kharkiv, as a result, had a sense of what could happen, and they also had historically a very strong and militant pro-Ukrainian movement that then took part in the, in the conflict in Donbass and was formed the kernel of the resistance afterwards. As for the condition of society now, of course, when Ukraine's very existence was in danger, society was extremely united in the beginning. You know, everybody wanted to join the territorial defense, pick up a gun and fight. I think what we see now after two years of war is a lot of fatigue and a lot of exhaustion. Uh, you know, casualties have been high. Uh, and also, it's a little bit the same pattern as we have seen in 2014. Uh, you know, Kiev is living more or less, except for, you know, recent time when there was a lot of barrages, more or less, uh, missile barrages, more or less normal life. Uh, there is a war far in the east. And, you know, if you're if you young men in Kiev, uh, you don't really necessarily want to go and die for Avdiv going to Donbass because you've never been there and or Bakhmut for that matter and it doesn't really matter to you who controls it. I think should the front lines be breached and you know that is not uh, that is not un- unlikely uh, the cohesion will return because once once the war becomes existential again uh, the psychology will change and you know many Ukrainians hope that they will not come to that. Um, and obviously, every time Russia attacks Kiev, as we have seen you know, over the new year, with missile barrages and kills civilians, uh, that also reinforces the unity, I think. And uh, there's still a very large number of people who are, are ready to fight. I'm just going to say, like, you know, the, the designer of, of the website for my book is leading to join the army this week. Let me go back to uh, go back to the Russians for a moment. Um, do you think the Russians understand? And when I say the Russians, again, you can kind of slice that however you wish. That you know what they have done is to reinforce the Ukrainian sense of nationality in a very powerful way, and you know that in some respects, no matter how the war actually turns out, they've in some sense. Lost it. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that assessment. That that certainly seems plausible to me. But I'm I'm more curious about getting inside their heads. I mean, I understand they're vengeful and angry and you know all that. But do you think that at, at some deeper level that they understand that you know this has been a, a failure? I mean, again, to go back to another bizarre character, uh, Prigozhin, uh, the head of the Wagner group, you, you had a sense that he sort of understood that uh, or believed that. Yeah. 
again, I mean, because Prigozhin had spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Yeah. So he had a, you know, a realistic assessment of what Ukraine is. I think there is an understanding that the Ukrainians are not Russians. But I think a lot of these characters, especially Girkin, you know, they correctly understand the facts, but the conclusions that they draw are not necessarily rational. So the conclusion drawn by many of the Russian sort of analysts from this, analysts in a very sort of loose sense of the word, you know, people in sort of the nationalistic military milieu, is that they just have to be much more harsh. And if you look at the recipes for the future of Ukraine uh, that are circulated, including on state news agencies, you know, like RIA, is that, you know, you know, there was this famous op-ed uh, on RIA published, uh, I think, in, in April or, or May 2022, that said, okay, well, you know, what do we do with Ukraine? If we take over Ukraine, we have to physically eliminate, you know, the entire elite that has polluted the minds of our brothers. You know, the ordinary people have to suffer to pay for their sins. And maybe, you know, in two generations, we'll make them into Russians. So the program, I think the, 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 the lesson learned from Ukrainian resistance is that it has to be met with genocide. I think that is, that is what a lot of people in Moscow have concluded. I'd like to turn back to Ukraine for a minute. When Zelensky was elected president, he uh, had an overwhelming vote. I think it was over 70% uh, when he was elected. Um, his popularity had declined before the war began, but of course became you know, stratospheric uh, afterwards. Uh, but uh, your book already uh, makes clear that uh, during the course of the first year of the war, which is what you, you focus on, that there were some kind of, I would say, incipient differences emerging between uh, his view of how to fight the war and uh, the view of the uh, armed forces commander, uh, General Zeluzhny. Those differences have now begun to uh, sort of break the surface a little bit. Zeluzhny gave a, an interview and posted a, a long paper on the, the Economist website so it looks like the adjournment of politics that had taken place for the first two years of the war is beginning to change. Uh, Ukraine is still operating under a state of emergency, so there won't be elections anytime soon, I, I suppose. What's your sense of kind of the state of you know politics inside Ukraine and how might that affect you know the, the war effort going forward? I mean, there's a whole issue about mobilization uh, you know, both Zaluzhny and Zelensky have talked about the need for 500,000 kind of fresh troops uh, to be able to fight this war over the long haul. That's very controversial. I gather it's a pretty vigorous debate uh, around Ukraine, uh, e even as we speak. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your sense of that. Well, I think when we say that, you know, Zelensky was popular, then he was unpopular before the war. And then his popularity is stored again. I think it wasn't Zelensky necessarily as a person, but you know, in his role as the president and the symbol of Ukrainian statehood. You know, I have never seen any portrait of Zelensky among soldiers on the front line. I've seen one soldier wearing a patch saying "I kill for Zelensky," and that was a joke. So um, I think I think abroad he was 
a very effective spokesman for the Ukrainian case, going over the heads of politicians and, and, and governments to the Western public opinion and making a moral case for Ukraine, which worked really well in the first year of the war. I don't think it's working anymore. Uh, as we can see by, you know, the funding um, uh, shortfall and the, you know, the U.S. politics around it. But um, the tension with the loosening was always there. And, you know, sometimes it's inherent in their dual roles because Zelensky is the uh, overall commander-in-chief and Zaluzhny is the commander of the armed forces. And so when they gather in the Stavka, which is the supreme headquarters that was set up a few months into the war, you know, you also have their, you know, the foreign minister, the finance minister, uh, you have the heads of the intelligence agencies. And uh, sometimes what makes sense in the purely military terms may not necessarily make sense uh, in the political and, and uh, you know, for example, he had to weigh priorities such as you know, securing Western weapons. And uh, sometimes there was a clash. But I think so far, they've you know, they, they, they have managed to uh, keep these tensions from uh, tipping over. You know, Zaluzhnev always says that he's not interested in politics and he's interested in, in running the military. And I think Ukrainians have a really bitter history uh, in the past you know, many centuries where the Ukrainian state in the 17th century or the Ukrainian state in the early 20th century all collapsed because of internal strife. And I think that's a lesson that was learned the hard way. Uh, and, you know, even, even in the recent past, you know, the, 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 the pro-Russian government of Yanukovych could only come to power because of uh, squabbles in the pro-Western camp in Ukraine in, in the, the Yushin Kantimashenko. And so I think as long as this existential threat persists, there will be great effort by Zelensky and Zaluzhny and others to keep things civil and, and workable. Are there substantive differences between them about how the war should be fought? I think it's more, I think it's more an issue of tactics. You know, Zaluzhny in the beginning of the war, adopted a very dynamic defense. So, so he traded land uh, for force preservation, and and that really worked. You know, if Ukrainians were fighting for every village when the Russians invaded, they would have no army by the end of the you know, first couple of days. But now that Ukraine was in the phase of trying to regain land, uh, any surrender of territory was seen as a big political setback, which is why. He, you know, Zelensky really insisted on fighting tooth and nail uh, not to let uh, Russia take the city of Bakhmut. And, you know, the Russians took Bakhmut at a tremendous cost to themselves. You know, Wagner basically was destroyed as a military force as a result of it, but obviously also uh, inflicting heavy damage to some of Ukraine's best units. And we've seen that you know, Ukraine not having these brigades really affected its ability to uh, launch a counteroffensive uh, last year, which did not achieve significant results. Do you have a sense of how the high command, I mean, think really of the, on the military side, how they assess the future of the war? I mean, do, do you think they see the next year as one where, which is basically one of positional warfare, and then eventually they build up and go on the offense? I mean, how, how are they thinking about the future of the war? 
I think the main priority in the next year is not to lose significant ground for Ukraine. Because we're now in a situation where Russia once again uh, has a very lopsided advantage in ammunition. And we're back to the days when it's a five to one ratio in the number of shells uh, that Russia can fire uh, all along the front line. And Russia has been on the offensive uh, in the last three months. You know, with limited results, but still, it's getting ground around Avdiivka, it's getting ground slowly in other areas. And so the priority for Ukraine, especially if uh, the supplemental doesn't come through anytime soon, and especially if, if this flow of Western military aid uh, slows to trickle, is not to allow Russia to have a major breakthrough into preventing catastrophic collapse of the front lines, which is not impossible. Although the, co- I mean, the Russians in Avdivka have taken enormous losses, both in men and materiel, uh, over right. the last three months. I mean, pretty astounding losses, actually. Which, in in, I mean, in many cases, would would break an army. Hasn't broken the Russian army yet, but um, it certainly has come at a, an enormous cost. And you have to assume that morale can't be that great on the Russian side of the line, given given yeah. that I would think. I mean, what we've seen really the lesson sort of in purely military terms in the past year is that neither Russia nor Ukraine have been able to carry out, uh, you know, combat arms warfare and carry out any successful adv- offensive operations. You know, Ukraine also took large casualties and, and, and a lot of losses in the Zaporizhia front and managed to seize, you know, what, five, ten little villages. Right. What do you think is the, um, I can use a, a bit of jargon, the, the, the theory of victory for uh, the Ukrainian high command? Why, you know, what is the story that, that gets them to success? Well, I think, I think the one thing that they uh, really focus on is long-range fires, uh, being able to disrupt the Russian rear. And uh, that has proven very effective uh, with the, you know, the cruise missiles that uh, were received from France and the UK in small numbers, but still. So uh, they hope that once the F-16s are in the skies, and that could also change the balance uh, of power uh, on the front line. But I think the war has settled into this pattern where it's down to the resilience of each of the two societies. So basically the question is, will the Russian society crumble first or will the Ukrainian society crumble first? And uh, we may not know this answer and to a large extent it depends on how much external help will Ukraine receive both in military terms, but also in just pure sustaining the economy terms uh, to prevent social unrest. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about something you address uh, in the book, and I think it's appeared in some of the excerpts, uh, which is the whole question of the West's assessment of the risks of escalation um, uh, in in uh, response to support for Ukraine. Uh, it's been a, a steady theme of, of this podcast uh, with uh, Elliot and me beating the uh, drum that the Biden administration has overestimated uh, the the risks of, of escalation, particularly given um, 
the losses that have um, that the Russian uh, conventional forces have suffered. Um, you know, not a lot of appetite uh, on Putin's part to actually be in a conflict, a real conflict with Ukraine. I mean, with uh, NATO. Uh, whatever the rhetoric is about how it's already going on in Ukraine. But the result has been a pattern, a consistent pattern, which you talk about in the book too, of delivery of assistance that's sort of always late, you know, and always a bit behind the curve. You know, it's always coming after the point at which it might have had, you know, maximal impact and maybe a decisive impact on the on the battlefield. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, I think the proof is in the pudding. You know, the Ukrainians were asking for, you know, F-16s, for the Patriots, for Abrams tanks, Leopard tanks, for, you know, Heimers, for everything you know, since the war began. And on every category of gear, they were told that, no, no, we can't give it to you because it's going to provoke the reaction from Moscow. And then it didn't. You know, but by the time this, you know, what the Pentagon described as a mountain of steel, which was really, I believe, a mountain, but still, you know, all this armor arrived in Ukraine in the summer of 2023, it was too late because the Russians had had you know, the entire winter and the spring to dig in, to build this you know, massive fortification and to recruit, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, soldiers. Uh, Ukraine really had the best chance of breaking through in, uh, in, in sort of September, October 2022, before Putin declared the mobilization. And uh, Russia only had about 100,000 combat troops in all of Ukraine at the time. And, but they didn't have the resources. So that, that offensive, while successful, eventually ran out of steam. And uh, let's remember that at the time, Putin had annexed, announced the annexation of four uh, Ukrainian regions to Russia. And again, put the nuclear card on the table and said that you know, this is now Russian land and different rules apply. This is not a bluff, quote-unquote. And the Ukrainians called his bluff and kept going and into the city of Liman after that speech. And again, Putin didn't do anything. So I think it's, in hindsight, it's very clear that Putin's nuclear threats uh, worked to a great extent. They did throttle Western support when it was ne most needed. And, you know, he, he was, because of that, uh, he was also able to uh, wait out the West and take advantage of the internal you know, political rifts in, in Western societies, as we can see now with the, you know, with the delays and possible, you know, general collapse of the consensus about uh, military aid and aid to Ukraine in the U.S. Congress. To ask a related question, the impression that I have, and I just ask you to tell me whether you think it's right or wrong, is that um, you know throughout this war we've been giving the Ukrainians military advice as well as weapons and some sorts of training, but that the advice is actually um, often not really appropriate for what their circumstances are, and that it. You know, there's a. I, I sometimes get the sense that the Ukrainians don't actually particularly trust our operational level military judgment about what they can do and what they they should do. That they, you know, I'm sure very grateful for the weapons and they're grateful for the intelligence, particularly the very fine grained intelligence. And maybe they 
Um, I'm, you know, I suspect they probably learn a lot from, you know, the technique and tactics of, say, air defense. But when it comes to operational level judgment about how to conduct the war, I sort of have the sense that the Ukrainians don't have a particularly high opinion of what it is that the United States and Britain, let alone some other countries, have to offer them. Is that too harsher a reading of things? I think it's correct. I think it's correct. And also, you know, I think there was an example to that as well in, in how the offensive failed. If you look at the U.S. military, you know, the last time the U.S. military faced a near-peer uh, adversary was in Korea. You know, the, the U.S. military has gone through the last several decades fighting country insurgency wars, which is a completely different scenario to what the Ukrainians had experienced. And the Ukrainians, you know, are fighting and a near peer, but a much stronger near peer, obviously. And um, they have adapted the way they're doing. They, they have, there's a lot of innovation. They're doing a lot of things that the U.S. military is not doing. You know, the, the, the drone technology that is now employed down to squad level at all levels of the Ukrainian military, is one example. The sort of the integration of the uh, Battlefield management platforms, you know, every, everyone at every level, you know, has this tablets uh, through which they can see, you know, the drones out there, so their artillery connects with the eyes in the sky. So you have a sort of Uber-like system <clears throat> that is quite advanced and, and you know, organic. And so uh, when the offensive was being prepared, several brigades were trained in Germany and other countries in Europe by the U.S. military. But they were trained in in the U.S. doctrine that and methods that presumes the existence of air support, and they were not trained in some of the real things that the Ukrainians use, such as you know, the drones, you know, the, the, this. <clears throat> and, and it's other other, other hard learned uh, ways of fighting a war. And then these brigades, because of this fetish, if you will, of American training were giving the best weapons and sent to fight. And, you know, they, they did not show very good results because they were not experienced in fighting war in Ukraine. And they lacked air superiority. I mean, they were being asked by or encouraged by American advice to do something that we ourselves would never do. Of course, yeah, yeah, there was that. And, but also, uh, you know, because there was this whole idea that the U.S. military is so superior, it can teach us so many things, uh, it, it really was a fetish. And it, it, you know, as it turned out, you know, all these brigades had to be reinforced with battalions from other existing brigades that did not get American training to maintain some kind of cohesion and, and to, to continue fighting. So I, I don't know if your reporting has, has taken you in this direction, but um, when you talk to American military people who are involved in these efforts, do, do you detect any increased sense of humility about this? No, I don't think so. I think, you know, what I sense is there's a lot of, of blame game going around. Because yeah. clearly the counteroffensive failed, and whose fault is this? And Ukrainians also made a lot of mistakes, obviously. And But in the U.S., you know, there's also a tendency to assign all the mistakes to the Ukrainians. And I think that's just unfair. Yeah, I, I share your sense on that. 
Eric earlier had said that there's a question about the supplemental uh, and whether it may be too late because of American internal domestic politics to restore aid to Ukraine at something like the level that we had before. Um, you know, one, one can always hope that actually there will be some sort of deal that is cut and the spigot will be opened again. I'm, I'm curious, um, c- can you talk us through each of those two scenarios? What, what does the war look like? What does the war look like if, you know, the, the Republican Party in the thrall of Trump just simply won't let military aid to Ukraine go forward? or an alternative world in which some sort of deal is cut before presidential politics uh, take over for the rest of the year? I think the situation on the ground will be the same. The question is the cost. How many more Ukrainians will die? I think the, the, you know, it's not like the Ukrainians have a choice in what to do. The Russians don't want to settle uh, without conquering you know, much or most of Ukraine. Certainly, they're not interested in a deal before the U.S. presidential elections because they hope they can get a much better deal should Trump win the election. And uh, so the Ukrainians will just keep fighting. And the question is, uh, how many more lives will be lost because they're outgunned? And obviously, it's going to be much more brutal and bloody uh, fighting, which many more thousands of Ukrainians will die if they're out of Obama. So let, let me uh, then just put up one more hypothetical to you. Um, obviously, if Trump gets elected, we're in a different universe in many ways. Let's say Biden gets reelected so that the that Putin's theory of victory takes a major blow. Namely, he's going to be up against the United States that is committed to opposing him rather than having a president who's uh, quite willing to pull the plug on Ukraine. Does that how how does that affect Russian strategy? Do you think? I guess um, I mean Putin is already working on alternative strategy. So he's already created an alliance, a military alliance that is functioning with Iran and North Korea, drawing on their resources. And I think um, what he's trying to do has failed so far is to draw China closer and closer to that. You know, China is still I mean, militarily not involved. Uh, but I think if you, if you look at it from from Beijing, you know, preventing a collapse, military collapse of Russia, remains in China's national interest. And so, 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 should Russia really be reeling? We'll probably expect a much more active Chinese involvement in this. We're running, you know, short on time, uh, Yarrow, and I I wanted to uh, ask you what you know what the consequences will be of sort of these scenarios that you and Elliot have been talking about if they come uh, come to pass. I mean, you at the end of your book, you describe Zelensky's visit to Washington, which was very successful. Uh, and you say that in, in a sense, the war had become not just Ukraine's war, but the West's war, even though, you know, Western, uh, there aren't Western boots on the ground per se fighting it's it's the West War and the consequence of uh, you know allowing uh, Putin to be successful would be um, in in your words uh, to you know something that would completely undermine uh, the credibility and deterrent uh, power of of the United States and the and the West. Is, is that where we're headed? You know, if there's no supplemental in your view, 
or will will we end up in some you know other kind of denouement? Well, I think we are heading in that direction, and it's clearly, even though many people in the U.S. say this is not our war, but nothing to do with Ukraine, viewed from Russia, it is a war against America, and viewed from China, it's also the West's credibility that's at stake and deterring its power. You know, so uh, especially after throwing all those huge resources into this war, you know, a Ukrainian defeat and early 2022 would not have been the defeat of the West. The Ukrainian defeat now would definitely be seen around the world as a defeat of America. And the Ukrainians will obviously keep fighting, you know, because they have no choice. And so it's quite possible that even without a supplemental, they will prevent a Russian victory just by sacrificing an entire generation of people. Could you see the war expanding? Uh, That is to say, with entry by Poland, uh, perhaps with some of the other states in Europe that are most concerned about Ukraine's fate? I mean, the only scenario under which the war would expand is if the Russian troops were nearing the Polish border. So if Kiev were to collapse, you know, things could become more probable. But I think the the more likely scenario, and we're talking now about catastrophic scenarios, is that Russia absorbs Ukraine and then uses the Ukrainian manpower to bulk up its armed forces and then tries again in the Baltics and Finland, you know, somewhere else in five, ten years. Which was historically, you know, the, the, way, the way the Russians were doing things. You know, they were fighting all those wars of expansion using the people. Moldova might be on the list as yeah. well. Or... Yeah, well, Moldova could be easy if, you know, if the Russians come to Odessa, then you know, why stop? Do you, I mean, and I know you've been mainly covering the Ukraine war from Ukraine, not, not from Russia. Is there, um, is there any way in which the Russian political and social order itself is fragile? Do you think? Well, I mean, we have seen that with Prigozhin, right? I mean, who would have thought that you know yeah. he would mount this coup? So Russia is hard and brittle, and so you never know when when, when tensions come to a boiling point. And that's that takes us back to you know the fact that the victory in this war will be determined by the resilience of each of the warring parties internally. And so at some point, all this, all this tensions will take a toll on Russian stability. We just don't know when. It'll be in six months or six years. Well, Elliot, um, I'm happy to leave the, the last question to you. But I will say that this has been a sobering conversation and uh, appropriately downbeat for Shield of the Republic, where we always you know, value our ability to bring a little gloom into everybody's life. Do you want to try and... Uh, end us on a more uplifting note. Well, I, mean, I think you know. I, I would say I think Yarrow's book is uplifting because it's um, the story of the people who were sort of written off by a lot of their friends um, and certainly by their enemies, who achieve really astonishing things, but before the Western arms begin to flow in, and I think. And one of the great strengths of the book is the way in which, uh, Yarrow, you move from, you know, the high level kind of strategic political thing down to 
specific engagements that you were uh, that you saw directly. I mean, I remember we first corresponded over your uh, the story you read about Voznesensk, this little town where, because of one of these mayors who you described uh, showing some initiative, the population kind of comes together and they s- slow down, and eventually stop a Russian column, and actually has some that has some uh, larger significance. I guess I th- I do think we have to remind ourselves, and again, I'll, I'll ask you, I already will give you the last word, ask you to comment on this, that there are a lot of other aspects of the war in which the Ukrainians have actually done pretty well. I mean, the Russians have not really been able to collapse the economy. That's a sort of a defensive success. The offensive success is, I mean, who'd have thought that they would have the success against the Russian Navy that they've had and against uh, and against the Russian military and uh, naval infrastructure in Crimea. And that seems to, those seems to me to be kind of a big deal that they've been able to, uh, that they've been able to, to do that. And then I guess finally, I mean, you don't want to get too caught up in body counts. I mean, the Russians have taken an enormous number of casualties. And I, I guess I just find it difficult to believe that that society is infinitely resilient. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, I'm mindful of what Yara you were saying about the, the question of this being a, a content, a contest about the fragility or the brittleness of the two societies. Of course, we, you know, the Russians have been very aggressive in trying to deny us and their own people information about their own brittleness. But that just means that there's stuff under the surface, which suddenly pops out with something like Prigozhin's bizarre march on Moscow. So I suppose I'm, despite everything and everything, I remain cautiously optimistic. Uh, you already want to bring me back down or you want to? No, no, I, I do agree with you. I mean, let's just take a step back. And look, you know, we're now two years into the war that Russia launched against a country that nobody expected to resist or survive long. Instead, it regained half the occupied land. You know, Russia still controls only about 18% of Ukraine. And the entire NATO military force was designed, you know, to stop the Russian offensive. And Ukraine by itself managed to do that. And so it's nothing short of a miracle that we're talking about the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the first place. That's a great point. Uh, on uh, on which we can end. Um, I, I mean, I agree with everything Elliot said. So uh, we'll end on an uncharacteristically upbeat note for, for Shield of the Republic. But uh, I'd like to thank our guest, Yaroslav Trofimov, the author of Our Enemies Will Vanish, The Russian Invasion and Ukraine's War of Independence. Terrific book thank you. on the first year of the war. And, um, you know, Sadly, this conflict is going to go on for a while, I think. So I hope we can have you back on uh, Shielded Republic in the, in the future. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. It was great to be on the show.